0: Hi, this is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theatre industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. Now, when I started this podcast, I made a list of a few people I'd like to talk to, and I've been very lucky to talk to two of those performers in the last month. The first was Terence Mann, whose episode you heard two weeks ago, and on the same list was today's guest, two time Tony nominee, Mary Beth Peel. Mary Beth Peel made her Broadway debut as Anna Leonoans opposite Yule Brynner in The King and I, and went on to appear in Nine, Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown, Sunday in the Park with George, Follies, The Visit, and Anastasia. She also starred on screen in Dawson's Creek and The Odd Couple, too, and off Broadway in A Man of No Importance, Macbeth, Hedda Gobbler, The Morini Strad, as Thousands Cheer, Cymbeline, and Birds of Paradise. So now, without further ado, here's Mary Beth Wright. Well, so I'd love to start us out by asking how did you first
1: become interested in performing? Oh, gosh. I don't think I thought of it as performing. I was just always a singer, you know, in church and um, school. And uh, I think I was a freshman in high school. And uh, I was just always a, a member of the chorus, a soprano in the chorus, but the chorus director, the music director asked me to sing a solo in the school assembly uh which meant i would have to sing in front of 2000 of my peers and i was uh very very shy and very very uh overweight uh, with glasses and all of the all of the things that a 14 year old um girl in the 50s in Davenport iowa does not want to get up in front of 2,000 kids and sing. So my mother said, well, if you're going to do that, you have to have at least one or two voice lessons. (laughs) So she found me a voice teacher who actually was the best voice teacher to this date that I ever had and who lived across the street, if you can believe it. So I had some voice lessons and my teacher got very excited and said, I think he might be an opera singer. I think he could be an opera singer. And I'm like, what the hell is that? So I sort of fell into what you and I call performing by just loving to sing and people singling me out. Um, both my music teachers saying, sing the solo and that, then my voice teachers saying, I think we're going to train you to be an opera singer. <laughs> so that's that's the that's the short version of the long story. And
0: what kind of music did you listen to growing up? Was it theater music or opera or
1: I listened to I didn't listen to opera. I didn't really uh have access to. I didn't know there was a radio broadcast of opera. Um I gravitated, we had a lot of classical records in our in our home that I would play um, pop music, the pop music then, it wasn't rock and roll, it was, you know, the American songbook, really. Frank Sinatra and Peggy Lee and, you know, Tony Bennett, the classical American songbook singers was basically what i listened to uh but not and and some there were occasionally there was a classical like on a sunday night there was a classical music station that i i didn't know anything about it but i uh i liked it and i I remember trying to find that station on a sunday night when i was supposed to be asleep uh, so I guess I was both um instinctively and by my um voice training headed toward classical classical music. And then when I, I went graduated from high school and went to university, I went to Northwestern as an opera major and that was really like a conservatory. It was all classical music. So I was very steeped in all classical concert music for uh well, until uh for over twenty years. Right. That's all I that's all I knew. Yeah.
0: And were your parents supportive of the idea of your being a yes. career?
1: Yes, they were. They were curious. I think it's probably in some ways a blessing that they had no idea what a uh competitive hard world it it was right um but they um they appreciated the fact that it was classical (laughs) that it was sophisticated um and they encouraged me because they knew that uh i had a, a gift of sorts and they um they supported that my um training and all the studying and studies and everything it's a lot of training for opera so yeah they were supportive they they had they didn't have a clue what they were supporting but they were supportive of me yeah
0: and did you move to new york right out of college sure or- yes
1: i did i did i got, actually i had an audition for an opera director who had his own opera company in new york city he was um the mentor of my opera teacher at Northwestern and he just happened to be in Chicago as I was graduating so I sang for him and um, he hired me to come to New York and uh, be part of his production of La Traviata um, that they were his company was going to take on a a small tour of the northeastern United States. So yeah, I came to New York (laughs) with a job as a young opera singer in a very demanding role. I mean it was kind of fairy tale. Fairy tale. Yeah.
0: And did you find that it was ever a challenge to kind of maintain your
1: voice? And oh, always. It's a lifetime challenge. I still do. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. That's the hardest part. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And so, of course, your first kind of theater role didn't come until Kiss Me Kate. But living in New York, did you find that you were more exposed to that as kind of a possibility? or?
1: Um, I never really thought of it as a possibility because I wasn't allowed to. I mean... In, in those days, the opera, if you were an opera singer, especially if you're a woman, there were there were a few baritones that I knew, one of whom I worked a lot with, who was able to do Broadway and do opera. But very often, at some point, they had to make a choice between either doing Broadway or doing opera. Um all my training every teacher i ever had every coach i ever had in that world said no 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 you'll you'll hurt your voice you'll ruin your voice first of all if you sing that material because it's 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 too low for you and um certainly you you certainly would not ever consider being cast in a broadway show because 8 shows a week would definitely ruin your voice so uh, yeah, I wasn't allowed to even think about it. <laughs>
0: right. And so what was your experience like with the Metropolitan Opera National Company?
1: Oh, it was fantastic. It was fabulous. Again, it was like a fairy tale. I mean, I I I won the Met Opera auditions as a 24-year-old, and they paid for all my training. They... Uh, I learned all kinds of roles with wonderful conductors and mentors and then had two years doing uh, four really wonderful roles that were perfect for my voice. The only problem was, as the youngest member of the company, um, I was very, uh, what shall we say? naive in a way but I really you know I I just did it <laughs> yeah. uh, I learned a lot from the older singers some of the things I that I was learning about the world of opera I liked and some of the things I was learning about the world world of opera I didn't like but I was so caught up in the um the thrill of being able to do those beautiful roles with a full orchestra uh, all over the country and Canada and Mexico and have the support of the Metropolitan Opera behind you. It was, it was thrilling. Right. Yeah.
0: And I believe one of the singers who you were mentored by was Risa
1: Stevens. And Absolutely. Yes. Yes. She was, she was the one that picked me and said, I want I want Mary Beth to be in my company of young American singers. The idea was from the that came down from the Met that um it's hard to believe now because the Metropolitan Opera now is full of American singers. The roster is they're even opening the opening nights, uh Saturday night coming up is an American opera, mm-hmm. Dead Man Walking. I mean, that's that was unheard of in the 60s, 70s, 80s, when I was singing opera. It was mostly European singers. There were some American singers, but they very seldom had the leads. They were second cast, third cast, you know. Yeah.
0: And so what was it like making the kind of first step in the
1: transition with Kiss Me, Kate, with John Reardon? Well... The first step came with, um, I had been for uh, the 22, 23 years of my opera life, balancing uh, a family life with children and um, the opera world and the demands of the opera world, not wanting to go to Europe to sing. I wanted to stay here. and as I got older and my, my, my natural uh, ability as a singer, I didn't have, I had not taken the time. One could say I had not been allowed to take the time as a young singer to, to develop the kind of technique that would get me through. Right. Um, so I, I spend a lot of time working on my voice, on the, the technique that, I pro had I had another path, I would have spent the earlier first ten years working on technique, as opposed to singing all over the world. <laughs> um, so anyway, I was making it for it. But along the way, it be- it became apparent to me that I was not really comfortable in the world of opera. I loved. The music, I loved the performing of it. But just the general uh, ambiance, the general milieu of um, the world of opera and the um, stresses and the tension and the high expectations I found to be not healthy for me, for me. So I um, (laughs) am, to make a long story short, I actually, I ended up, um, I, I, I got a little, I got ill. I had what was the beginning of some kind of, they didn't know what to call it in those days, but like an autoimmune thing. But my, one of my, I went to a doctor, he said, basically, your body is allergic to itself. And because I was not doing what I was supposed to be doing. Right. And my body was letting me know that um, this was not healthy and not sustainable. So one of those doctors, very wise man, as I left his office said, I think you should take an acting class. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I said, well, I never had considered taking an acting class because I think one of my reasons for success as an opera singer was that I was a good actor. I had never taken acting classes, but compared, comparatively speaking, in the world of opera, again, that was then. Now it's much different. The, the demands, theatrical acting demands on young and older opera singers are, are very extreme, mostly because of television and the camera. But it's, um, and many more theater directors directing opera. So it's uh but back then, I was sort of a I was a rare I was a rarity mm-hmm. I, I I think um I often think that people thought I sang better than I did because I was such a good actor <laughs> as an opera singer. I think I fooled a lot of people, but be that as it may i start i I started taking an acting class and ended up doing some Shakespeare with uh, man named Jeffrey Hor- Horowitz, who was my um, scene partner in this class. And he now runs and uh, founded and runs the Shakespeare Company in uh, New York City, Theater for New Audience, and has his own contemporary version of the Globe, the old Globe in Brooklyn. So I I was paired up with a really good guy who knew his Shakespeare. And um, some friends who had been, who I had known from the opera days, um, a conductor and a theater director, uh, opera director, stage director, came to see one of our little Shakespeare productions. And they were looking to cast Kiss Me Kate at Minnesota Opera, where I had sung many, many times as an opera singer. And so they said, would you like to come to this musical? And I thought, well, why not? It was a seemed like a perfect way to find out what the world of musicals is to try out see if I actually can be an actor uh, with speaking lines, not just singing, as opera is, and um, and the, the baritone that I would be working with was a baritone I had done opera with, John Reardon, who was one of those rare fellows who did do both opera and music theater. Right. So it seemed like a perfect opportunity to learn from him and to uh, just try it. And I did. And my life <laughs> changed <laughs> forever. Yes. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. And
0: you mentioned earlier the kind of warnings you received about having to find a different part of your voice for musical theater as opposed to opera, yeah. in the lower mm-hmm. register. And yeah. did you
1: find that to be the case? To be? A oh, show? yes, absolutely. I had to. In fact, when I eventually, because of the Kiss Me Kate, it led to my being cast with Yul um, Brynner in King and I our f- my first project pr- production with him was in los angeles and i remember one of the reviews <laughs> yes. she really took me to task and one of this you know you you don't remember most people don't remember the good reviews but boy you sure remember the bad ones and she said you know this isn't la traviata She didn't like the fact that my voice sounded so classical. Mm -hmm. That if that's not the way King and I is supposed to sound to her. Right. So I, I had to work over the next few years. I worked very hard to make my singing voice sound more like my speaking voice. Basically, you know, that, that transition from speaking to singing to making it more natural. Yeah.
0: And did you find the culture within the theater world to be kind of less stressful than in the opera
1: world? Oh, yes. Yes, yes, yes. Yes. Not only, well, I mean, it it has its own kind of stress, which basically has to do with stamina. Right. Uh, But uh, it's more fun. And the people that I was working with and that I was meeting Seem to enjoy their life more <laughs> you know you weren't worrying about how much sleep you got you weren't worrying about should you eat this should you not eat that don't don't do this don't do that save your voice save your voice you know that was all all those kinds of stresses went away
0: and so at that point, working opposite Joel Brenner, he was pretty old and had been doing the show for many years. And what was it like to kind of find chemistry with
1: him and be co-starring with him at that age? I didn't even think about the age. He was ageless. Mm-hmm. And the chemistry, I didn't think about that either because we just sort of fell in love with each other from the first day they... I had had two weeks of rehearsal with the stage manager to learn the the staging and basically follow the footprints of the other late Mrs. Adnes who had been working with with him. Um, And then the day came when Brenner came to rehearsal and that was, we were about then to open so I only had a few days rehearsal with him, but I remember very clearly the stage manager saying to me, Now listen, when Mr. Brenner comes in and he will, you know, come over to meet you, do not touch him and do not do not look him in the eye. Mm. I said, Oh, well, that seems really silly, but okay. So he walked in and I, you know, saw him come in. I didn't exactly look him in the eye, but he made a beeline for me and a big hug and a kiss on both cheeks and looked me in the eye and said, welcome. So, you know, that was the beginning of a lovely, lovely friendship. Really, really lovely.
0: Meaningful. And what was it like to to have this experience of making your Broadway debut in such a hit and being Tony nominated?
1: Insane. was insane it had no um it had no reality to me I really uh, you know I just started doing I mean I'd only done two musicals at that point Kiss Me Kate with the Minnesota Opera and um almost two years of King and I with Brenner on the road so I really didn't know the world of music theater and I really, I knew that I had entered it, instead of entering it in my early 20s, I was entering it in my mid-40s. So I knew that I was not going to ever do the ingenue parts. Right. Um, so it had a kind of, a, it was an adventure, but it didn't, I, I, it didn't have a sense of reality to me because I really didn't know what to expect. Right. And it was hard to have any expectations. I didn't know what kind of roles there were besides Kiss Me Kate and King and I for a woman of a certain age. Um, and as far as the Tonys were concerned, I can say that I was, I was flattered, I was honored, but I was also very uncomfortable because I didn't know anybody. I, I, you know, we, my husband and I sat in the theater watching everybody hugging each other and running up and down and just, you know, this big family of wonderful, wonderful, talented people. And I thought, I don't, I think, I think I belong here, but I don't know any of these people. And if by some fluke I should win, I'm really going to. not want to they're I'm, i'm not gonna know how to handle it because they're gonna say who 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 is who is it and i didn't i i didn't want that right i didn't want that and i said to myself if i ever come back here again and if i'm ever in this position again i'm gonna be a part of it Right. People are gonna know who I am. They're gonna I'm gonna be surrounded by people who respect me, know me, admire me, whatever, and feel like I earned it. Yeah. So that was it was great, but it was uncomfortable that first time. Yeah. And so
0: after the king and I it was kind of a break until your next Broadway show. And were you still auditioning for Broadway during that time? Or were there roles you turned down or?
1: Uh, No, there definitely weren't roles I turned down. I did a a lot of summer uh, (laughs) summer musicals. I did a couple of other productions of King and I with other, I think, a couple of opera companies. no, I auditioned for things, but and I did a lot of workshops and readings of things, but I didn't really as far as Broadway musicals I didn't uh I didn't get another part on Broadway until 9. Right. I mean, I did musicals in regional theaters and I I did turn down maybe a couple of them I did some off Broadway stuff. Uh, and a couple of times I was supposed to come to Broadway with a regional thing, but something else happened. And in the meantime, I started getting television work. So I got, uh, I, that was another world to learn about. Right.
0: Yeah. And so Two directors that you worked with off-Broadway during this time that I'd love to ask about are Arthur Lawrence and Edward Albee and oh, Martin, yes. collaborating with those two great men.
1: Yes, yes. Actually, that's right. Birds of Paradise, which was um, Arthur Lawrence. Um, he ended up directing it. He was responsible for um, the composer and the uh lyricist, writing this show called Birds of Paradise, which was a kind of a spoof on uh, The Seagull, the Chekhov play, The Seagull. And it was a lovely, lovely, lovely musical, beautiful music, fun script, great cast. I mean, you know, we, we had a lot of fun. And Arthur was very, very supportive of the piece because he had brought Winnie and David together to write it. And um, the original director, Arthur, had disagreements with, shall we say. So the original director was, said goodbye to, and Arthur took over and he directed, it was a musical, but he directed it like we were doing Chekhov, Hmm. like we were doing a Chekhov play. And, he was very, very, very demanding, very funny. He uh, he took it out on Donna, Murphy. He decided that Donna was, a lot of directors do this. They pick one one person who uh, they, if they feel the need to be critical, they don't want things to go too smoothly, <laughs> you know. They, if they feel the need to be critical, they they pick one actor out, and in, in this case, in Arthur's case, it was Donna, who ironically had started out being his favorite. At least we all thought she was his favorite, and then, you know, he was he was tough on her. He was, but he was lovely as a director. Very. We had a wonderful time, and years later, he apologized to her. Mm. So, Yeah, and um, Edward Albee, that was, yeah, that was not a musical. That was one of his plays, one of his early plays, and um, it was so interesting. He really, he was the kind of director who listened. Hmm. He would just sit. I don't remember what it was like in the rehearsal room, but I remember when we were rehearsing, in the theater he just sat with his eyes closed (laughs) and would give notes based on how it sounded Mm. mostly a lot on punctuation because that he wrote it exactly with the punctuation because that's the way he heard it and that's the way he wanted to hear it it was very was very good training for working with steven sondheim Mm with the you know exact precision paying attention to every little punctuation and the small words are as important as the big words sometimes more important do you
0: like to suggest changes and things like that in the rehearsal room or
1: you mean changes to the writing
0: right right or to the direction to the stage.
1: Oh. The direction is every director is different. Some directors let you just find your way through and fumble your way through, and then they pick what they like best, or everybody's fumbling their way through, or they have a vision already. And they, I mean, in the world that I had come from in the opera world, directors mostly needed you to be at certain places to make the picture the big picture. Um, most of the th- and a lot of musical directors work that way. Most of the directors I've worked with, the the actor is um, pretty free to find his own way. Um, at least it's been my experience. Um, as far as writing is concerned, um, if the writer if the writer is alive, and it's a new piece, and they're in the room with you, I would never. Unless someone asked me, like there are right. Moise, working with Moisés Kaufman, I mean the actors write. They write it. Right. You come to rehearsal every day with. If it's not lines, actual lines, it's a um, what he what Moisés calls a moment, uh, a moment in the storytelling that you decide you want to tell in a certain way. It doesn't even have to be your part, and you bring that moment and you tell your fellow actors what you want them to do and then you show it in rehearsal and Moises takes the information and uses it or throws it away or files it away for future. So you never know when you're working with Moises how much of what you're bringing to it, both line-wise, character-wise, situation-wise, is going to get used eventually. Because he workshops a lot with the actors doing their homework, you have to. It's a hard, it's hard. You do your, go home and do your homework, and and do the work of um, the writer. It's very interesting. It's an interesting process. But I think I found like working with with Pete Gurney, who is a wonderful, wonderful coll- collegial playwright, and writes very naturalistic. Um, he was very often in the rehearsals, in the plays that I did of his, and if 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 something wasn't working, if the actor was trying it maybe two or three times and just it just wasn't working, he would say, "I'll fix it," mm. and then he would go, either fix it right there on the spot, or you know say, "What if you said this?" or He'll go home and then the next day bring a rewrite of the scene. And sometimes it gets fixed right away and sometimes it doesn't. But that kind of, there are many, I find the really good writers, if the actor can't fix it or make it work, they know or they feel, they take the responsibility on themselves that it hasn't, that they haven't written it exactly right which is really inspiring to be in a room with a writer that's that um, not proprietary about their, or not defensive about their work. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. because you really do feel like you're collaborating
0: and so you mentioned your earlier Shakespeare training, and you went mm-hmm. on to do *Cymbeline* in the park and *Macbeth*. Mm-hmm. Later on. And what do you like about the kind of rhythms, unique rhythms of Shakespearean text?
1: And well, it's very musical. I mean, it's very. Um, I find it kind of interesting that, having come from the world of opera, that I never gravitated to Shakespeare. Maybe I would have if I hadn't gotten that call to go do Kiss Me Kate, maybe I would have stayed pursuing Shakespeare. But um, I just, I never really, uh, it's always very hard. It's hard work for me. It doesn't feel natural. And yet I do understand the importance of the rhythms as a musician. Um, but to try to make it natural for an American sensibility, I I find it, I'm very intimidated by it. Mm. Yeah.
0: And is there a Shakespearean role that you haven't done that you would like to do?
1: Um, (laughs) There is a role that I think every actor, actress of a certain age, if if they want to do Shakespeare at all, it's called Mad Margaret mm-hmm. in um, Richard III. She has a couple of other parts in some of the other history plays, but I can't remember them right now. Maybe some of the Henry plays, but she's a really interesting character and she has a fabulous scene <laughs> where she goes mad. <laughs> yeah but i did get to do gertrude which was very i was very grateful to be able to do that wonderful production of hamlet in boston and um with campbell scott he was fabulous fabulous hamlet it's a great cast
0: and I'd be curious to know your perspective on auditioning, if you enjoy it or if you feel that it comes easily to you or what pieces you like
1: to use for it, things like that. You know, it's so interesting, Charles. I have to confess to you that I haven't auditioned. Before. The only auditioning that I have done in recently is for film or television because I I really don't I haven't auditioned for musicals in a long time. Um I guess people they they know what they're going to get I guess <laughs> or I've been involved in a workshop or early readings and and just continue with the piece. So I I don't I don't really remember what it was like auditioning when I first started because I I really didn't know I I mean, my my book with the songs that I took with me to auditions—it was such a hodgepodge. And no one ever advised me, "This is what you should do." This is Mm -hmm. what I just sort of flew by the seat of my derriere and um, picked things that I thought would suit the character I was auditioning for or the composer I was auditioning for. so my what Broadway people called their book, my book was all over the place. Just I never really I never really had what I would call a a book. And then I started doing film and television and straight theater where I didn't need to I wasn't auditioning for musicals unless it was a reading or, you know, would get cast for a reading or a workshop like I say and then either stay with it or and um auditioning for film and television lately has been just a nightmare because you have to do the selfies you have to set up the lights and you have to get put on the makeup and you have to be dressed a certain way and you have to at the microphone where it's supposed to be and you have to memorize the lines or do you not memorize the lines or where do you look and who's reading with you You have, to, do you have someone come and read with you do you pay them or do you do, ask them to do a favor or do you have your daughter on the phone saying the lines but she can't see you so she's I mean it's horrible I hate it I hate it but what we've had to do over the last three years and a role you played of a character that has gone mad is <laughs> the beggar
0: woman and Sweeney Todd um and what was it like to kind of take on that role and that complex score and
1: it's 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 so interesting that you asked that question because the first time I saw Sweeney Todd with in the original production in the 80s when I was blown away by it. But I was fixated on the bigger woman right. from the first from the first moment, I was like, "What the hell what's going who's that? Everything else was going on like crazy, and I could not I was fixated on bigger woman so that by the time we got to the end, I was like, "Oh my God, no wonder I was fixated on her. <laughs> it's all about her <laughs> so that's always been was always my dream to play beggar woman and I got to do it twice which is really really great really great
0: and you mentioned Sondheim being kind of a stickler for punctuation and things like that and I wonder if there's any specific cases you remember of him
1: I don't remember specific but I always remember either in rehearsal or After a performance, (laughs) I would see him, he would give me that look and he would, he would say whatever word it was or look at it. It's not a, it's a, it's, it's not a period. Just look at it again. You know, he did it. I I think probably every show I ever did of his, that he was around, there was always something. I mean, I wasn't the only one, but Right, right. You know, and he would say, Oh, it's beautiful, it's beautiful, you know, it's it's just wonderful wonderful. And then there'd be this pause. (laughs) But look at look at this, look at that line. Just look at it. I did it right. Just look at it. (laughs) And I'd go look at it and I think, didn't I do it that way? And I think, well, I guess I didn't because he remembered it, or he pointed it out. So it would make me, next time I did that line, it would make me really be aware of not getting sloppy. Yeah.
0: And so I think it was around this time that you were on Dawson's Creek. And what was it like to have that kind of film and TV stardom in addition to the stage? And did you find that it kind of came back to make it easier to find theater work or...
1: It's so interesting, you know, I think for the Dawson's Creek thing was such a surprise to everyone. It was a last minute, it was a last minute casting. I didn't want to audition for it because I was out in LA and I was doing a play and I was was doing Sylvia, actually. And I was supposed to come back to Broadway to do Triumph of Love. And I didn't want to audition for a TV sitcom because I was going to come back to Broadway and be in this Broadway musical and they, and I I don't know. I just I kept thinking, well, I don't understand it. They didn't they sent me the sides, just this little scene. There were only like five lines. I didn't know it's called Dawson's Creek, but it doesn't say whether that means it's it's in Alaska or Tennessee, or is it 200 years ago, or is it now? I just know the character's name is Grahams. And I i didn't even know how to begin to think about it. So I kept turning down the audition. And finally, my agent called and said, you know, this is the last day they're auditioning and they really want to see you. So I got in the car, as one does in L.A., and drove to the studio and it turns out they were having the final day of auditions. And there was a poster up on the wall for Dawson's Creek with this big kid's face on it that I presumed was Dawson. And it was James Vanderbeek, who I'd done the Albie play with, mm. Finding the Sun, uh, 10 years earlier. Mm. Yeah, maybe no seven years earlier, six years earlier, something like that. And I thought, oh my god, look what happened to baby James. He's got a <laughs> lead in a TV series. Well, oh, okay, I guess I'm playing his. Gra- I must be playing his grandmother. Well, I played his mother in the Albie play. Okay, well let's we'll go in. So I went in, and the writers were all there, and everybody was there, and I said. Uh, You have to tell me, and then they said, it takes place in a fictional Cape Cod, Boston, now, contemporary. So I I had to come up with a kind of Boston accent and make it contemporary. (laughs) And I got it. And we all went to Wilmington, North Carolina. And everybody, the kids were all young, some a little more experienced than others. I was not experienced. For I'd done one Law and Order, so they all thought I was the experienced one because I was the old one, but no. Some of them had had much more on-camera experience than I had. But we just, it was just a, it was a um, season replacement, so it was only like 13 episodes. And no one ever dreamed. I mean, maybe the network did, but none of us ever dreamed that it would become the phenomenon that it was so you know we just we realized by the end of that season the kids were all little baby stars and (laughs) that we were going to have another season and we all just went back to wilmington and shot another season right and then we went back to wilmington and shot another (laughs) season and it just and it was great because it was out of the limelight. It was out of the, you know, you everybody was pretty much living a pretty normal, balanced life, even though they were baby stars and there were paparazzi around. But the, the, the network and the studio kept the, them pretty protected. It was great. Right. That is
0: okay. great. Mm-hmm. And another screen project that you did that I love is The Odd Couple 2, which is such a fun. Oh, movie. yeah. That <laughs> is fun. Yeah, that was great. Was it like to work with Walter Matthau and Jack.
1: Leonard? Oh my God, it was great. It was very interesting because Jack was very private and kind of—I don't think he was well. And he would—he stuck pretty much to himself. But Walter was just fabulous. We had such a good time. So we laughed, and he would always find a way. He knew that um, it was my—it was the first movie. I think it was my first um, on camera movie. I'm not sure about that, but he knew I was nervous. And he, when we had at the uh, first, after the first scene, after we'd shot it a few times, he pulled me over. He said, Come here, kid. And he pointed to the monitor and he asked one of the sound people to replay what we had just shot. And he said, look at that. And so I'm looking at it, and I'm going, oh, that's not bad. He said, right? He said, the camera likes you, kid. Don't be nervous. Oh. So it was very sweet. He was lovely. He made me really feel like a, a contender. <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, it was great. Very generous person, funny person fun and, great fun
0: and so what was it like in 2032 to come back to broadway with nine and with antonio banderas and
1: it was thrilling it was thrilling i worked really hard on the on that audition i hadn't auditioned for a musical in a long time and and i worked really hard on it because murray and wanted to do it in the original key and i wasn't I did I wasn't singing like that anymore with high A's and high, you know, A flats and stuff. And I just uh and uh so I worked really hard on it and I really, really wanted to do it. And I knew the director wanted me and I knew that the music conductor director wanted me, but Murray was just not happy with it and uh really wanted to keep it the song and the original key. And then he finally relented and the director and the music director won. And I won. Right, That so was great. That was great. There was a lovely, lovely company. Antonio was such a gentleman. I mean, he managed to maintain that rehearsal room in such a way that every woman no matter their age or their part felt like he was they were his favorite (laughs) i don't know how he did it but he did he was great yeah
0: and what was it like to to work with
1: david laveau
0: who was a great director
1: great director i loved david i loved auditioning for david he made the audition feel like we were actually working like we were working together, it felt like a, a a rehearsal. So you were free. You felt like I. That's what I, that might have been when I started realizing that the best way to do an audition is to think of it as your first day of rehearsal, and that you already have the job. Then you're just there to um, collaborate and just to come in with what you think it might be for that day. And um, David was very instrumental in my feeling comfortable with thinking of auditions that way. He was great, yeah.
0: And has there ever been a role, I'd be curious to know, that you found especially hard to kind of find an acting way into, be it in a musical or a
1: play, or? Oh, gosh, yes. I think most of them. (laughs) Um, I'm just trying to think most recently. Um, Well, I did a, in two, it wasn't that long ago. It seemed pre COVID, let's say. Everything seems long ago if it's pre COVID. Um, I did an interesting production of Macbeth at Classic Stage where John Doyle, who's one of my all time favorite directors, uh, wanted me to play King Duncan. Now, so I had a, double thing, making that English, Shakespearean English sound natural to American ears, which as I said before, was not easy for me. And I'm playing a man. So that was, and John just, he just, he just kept saying, just be yourself. I think, how can I be myself? What are you <laughs> talking about? But it was, again, the, the best way for almost anything, whether it's acting or singing or giving a dinner party or uh, anything, is just breathe just take a deep breath and keep breathing deeply and it you sort of shed all that uh, away and yeah so i got there eventually and i got to the pl- point where it was really fun i really couldn't wait couldn't wait to do it mm-hmm. that's a good sign that's a good sign yeah but that when you ask that question that that's certainly the most recent one that comes to my mind that was um tough i've but uh, almost all of them there's always something that is not just maybe it's the perfectionist in me or i don't know but there's always some hurdle something that you're hoping to crack you know yeah that's that's what makes it fun to do eight shows a week actually is you Mm. you get either closer or further from it and then you keep you keep trying yeah
0: i'd be curious to know your kind of thoughts on the process of aging within the industry because people talk Uh, about the kind of ageism that
1: there is yeah i have uh you know well my first thought about aging is that i just do not understand the need for not so much Theater actors, but camera actors, film and TV actors, women, men too. I mean, Jack uh, Lemon, when we did Odd Couple 2, part of his, I don't, don't want to say his problem, that part of what was not so fun for him or for us working with him, was that he had had so much face work done by then that I, I, you couldn't tell what was happening. You know, and it was ironic because there's Walter with the saggiest, craggiest, most lined face in filmdom. It was very interesting, but I took that as a cautionary tale about face work and I, I see younger and younger actresses mostly, but also actors younger and younger getting, maybe not what they call facelifts, maybe not the surgical stuff anymore, but Botox here, a little this, a little there, a little trying to fix everything. Nothing's fixed. Nothing is supposed to be fixed. Right. And it isn't even just aging. I mean, I look at, photos of myself in my 20s and then I look at photos in my 40s and I remember in my 40s seeing myself in the mirror and thinking oh my god I'm really oh I'm getting old Mm -hmm. but then I look at the photos of myself in the 40s and the photos in the 20s and I'm thinking actually I look better in my 40s than I did in my 20s and then I look at the photos in my 60s and I say I remember looking in the mirror in my 60s and thinking, oh my God. And I look at the photos and I think, I look great. What was <laughs> I talking about? So, my, I guess my, my thing about aging per se has to do with the on camera face, face work, trying to, stop it trying to stop the aging process trying to pretend like it doesn't exist that i feel it's so it first of all it robs you of your main instrument the instrument of expression on camera is your face unless you're a stunt double it's your face so i just don't understand i understand how if you are a, a, a regular person who's not in the showbiz? if it makes you feel younger or if it makes you feel sexier or if it gets you a better job or whatever and you want to appear younger, I totally understand that. I, I don't necessarily agree with it, but I understand it, but I don't understand an actor. Right, who who needs their face to express what's happening or not happening. As far as the rest of aging, as far as the physical, uh, mental, emotional part of aging, I, all I can say is I'm still learning. <laughs> still learning. And I recently had a very humbling experience experience that is reminding me to just settle down and keep learning because i slipped on the pavement in tri- in Chinatown we were in Chinatown and i slipped and fell and broke my basically the top of my femur oh but yeah but what i have is a a rod down the almost down to my knee now so i'm now i have titanium woman like everybody else uh, I I never thought that would happen to me because I'm pretty physically um, agile and I do a lot of yoga and I do a lot of walking and I just just never thought that would happen but it did and I, I had surgery and I was in rehab and phys- PT and I'm now into it's been uh, I think I'm almost Yeah, I am in my fourth month. Fourth month since um, beginning of my fourth month since the um, surgery, Mm. and um, just starting to not use my cane. But I'm there and doing PT twice a week and lots of exercises daily and lots of walking, walking, walking in spite of the pain or the discomfort. And it's very humbling. It makes me. makes me appreciate that i was in as good a shape as i was when i fell but it makes me also really appreciate the need to stay in good shape right to get back in shape and stay there as best i can which um doesn't mean <laughs> having i mean it's ironic where i say i don't believe in surgery for the face but i've just had surgery for my femur <laughs> <laughs> so yeah but i guess just sort of going with the flow you know yeah and realizing that in some ways as far as the business is concerned in some ways getting older is kind of wonderful because first of all there's less competition i mean it's just the reality of life that people are either retiring or leaving us Uh, so there's less competition, there's less roles too but if you're lucky I mean there are occasionally there are really good roles really good and um, if you get if you're fortunate enough to snag one of those then you know it's great Um. But I guess, as far as aging in general, uh, it just you just have to be grateful for every day. And so I would love to ask about a
0: wonderful show you did, which was Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown. Oh, yeah. And I'd be curious to know why you think that that show wasn't able to have as long a run as it kind of deserved to.
1: I, that's a really great question. And I firmly believe it wasn't ready. We went to Broadway too soon it it was it was um it had all the best intentions we had had two really at least two that i was involved in workshops wonderful workshops uh and um what's his name amodovar was was there for some of them ah. and it was exciting and it was the music was so beautiful and we i love the script and i just thought oh this is this is going to be really special i feel like the um it was overly ambitious to move it right to broadway without any actual with just going from a workshop with music stands to broadway that it, it needed it needed some out of town trials right to find out where where the story was there was so much technical uh scenery moving in and out of the theater couldn't accom- ac- accommodate all the scenery there was it was really very difficult backstage and people were sort of uh it didn't feel grounded hmm. I feel like uh, there were too many possibilities, so many possibilities of choices that could be made, but because of the time frame of a broad, you had a certain amount of previews, and then you got to do it. So I think choices were made that if there had been more time or at least one out-of-town production, it would have been made with less stress. i i I think and and i think it i firmly believe it will find its way back at some point yeah i I just the score the music is so beautiful the characters are delicious yeah yeah i think it just it just got ahead of itself and so
0: on the kind of opposite side of that a show you did on broadway that had had a lot of previous productions and work was the visit and what uh, like to come into that with john kander and Cheetah rivera and-
1: oh that was that was heaven that was heaven there's just heaven it was and john doyle again my as i say one of my favorite directors just working with john alone was heaven but everything about it it uh it just felt it, we all felt like we were in the right place at the right time and it was finally the right time for this piece that had been circling around and had just every time it would look like it was ready to go something would happen some right. tragedy you know and um yeah it was it was wonderful and it was uh, i was so thrilled to be working with cheetah again and it really it um it gave me an an added bonus besides this wonderful show to do every night and that is my friendship with cheetah which we just it was like oh we felt like old girlfriends that never had a chance to really sit down and talk about it <laughs> and it yeah it was great it was great
0: and I'd be curious to know with that too, working with Roger Reese, who of course passed away during the run.
1: Yeah, that was very hard. It was very hard. But you know, it's interesting because I had it wasn't the same experience at all, but it was not dissimilar in working with Yul Brynner, who by the time we left Broadway was clearly dying. I mean, people could tell. Right, uh, and uh, and I had known it for quite a while before the world knew it. But so the support and the love that goes into supporting your colleague to help them do the work that they're meant to do, both in Brenner's case and in Roger's case. Roger, he did not want to not do the show right and we didn't want him to not do the show either so everybody just was on board to make it possible for him to continue as long as he could and the same with Brenner as long as he could so i've actually had two experiences like that
0: yeah I'd be curious to what you thought of the kind of audience response to the visit, and if you felt it kind of had reached its final form by
1: that point. Or, I don't know what to say about that. I'm not sure. I'm not sure that it ever really found its audience, in the sense that the people who who came who still stop me on the street or in the subway and say, oh, the visit. And I'm thinking, how do they even remember that I was in it? But because the the show itself had such an implant, impact on them, or they came back and saw it three or four times, I feel like um, I'm a big believer in timing. I do think it was the right time for that show. Uh, there's something about, it's a lovely theater, but there's oh, there always has been something about being on that side of Broadway that is um, a challenge to right. get audiences to even know that there is a theater there. Uh, I don't know how much of it was that. I don't know. But I think that everyone who was involved with that production went away very happy and very feeling like that was a job well done and that show deserved not necessarily to be a big boffo hit but to be seen yeah yeah and and as i say remembered by people who people who got it boy yeah
0: and a real life role that you took on was in the Morini strad the play and what was it like to kind of have that experience of playing a real life character? Something that you've done a few times and
1: the Morini Strad, yes, that was oh, that was really fun. That was fun because I really got to. I felt like I had a a leg up on that part because I was a, a trained musician, and I had hung out with a lot of trained musicians and sung with a lot of orchestras and sung with a lot of string quartets and. Um, she was a character man she was a character it's always fun to play tough old broads <laughs> <laughs> yeah but i felt um like i said i felt like i had a leg up on that one uh, uh, over other actresses who you know did just didn't through no fault of their own, but just didn't have the background or the musical training that I had had. Right. So, yeah.
0: And do you like to do outside kind of historical research or things like that?
1: Yes. Oh, yeah. You, what, you have to be uh, careful, though. You have to be careful that you don't let it get in your way from your from your own creative instincts or juices. Yeah, it's a little tricky. Can be. And
0: I'd love to know, too, what that process was like for Anastasia, which is not just a real-life story, but a real-life mystery, and if you sort of formed an opinion about what
1: really happened. Well, interestingly enough, again, it's just kind of a miracle. For probably close to 50 years, 40 years, certainly, I had been totally infatuated with all things Russian. Mm. Russian music, Russian poetry, Russian theater, Russian literature, Russian art, Russian, you name it. Um, History, politics, all of it. Fascinated by it. I have three bookshelves here full of Russian stuff. Mm. Um. so I've been doing my research on Russia in general, and on the Romanovs in particular, and that period of time, the revolution, you know, turn of the century, for years. It's like I just walked into the costume. <laughs> And also that was another thing was having those costumes built, literally built on me. So I felt like the Dowager Empress would have felt going to her dressmaker. Mm. You know, Linda Cho from the very first fitting, all the, the Muslims, the everything, every stage, all to the smallest bead, to the placement of the lace, everything was built on me. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that as far as authenticity between the research that I've been doing for all that time. And I went, I had been to Russia, I'd been to St. Petersburg and Moscow, so I'd seen a lot of the actual places. Uh yeah, I mean it's a tragic story. And I can see I, I do totally understand why uh, people would latch on to the possibility that someone survived. Right. And if someone survived, it should be a young woman. And if there is a young woman who survived, she's an heir. And she, uh, it, it, you know, especially given the politics of post revolutionary Russia, there's a, a lot of money there. Right. And a lot of jewels that people are still selling and buying Romanov jewels. So I certainly see where the, uh, the story came, because it came from people really wanting to be the survivor. And yeah. I'm
0: curious to know, too, what it was like seeing that show through its workshops and tryout. And I know you were involved with it for a while yeah and were there big changes made
1: or anything like that or um no, I don't think there were. I think that um it's interesting I I think that uh, Terence he he pretty much knew wh- what he wanted to say far so as the book is concerned, the structure of the book, the music was, In the lyrics, there might have been there were some lyric changes, but not that much musical changes. There was one the one there was one character, the character of um, Gleb, uh, the police guy. Uh, They had a it was a problem with that character trying to make him the heavy and yet also the potential love triangle. And yet also possibly slightly humorous there was a lot of um trying to find the balance in that character but the other characters and the other parts and everything i mean it was a lovely lovely trip and in fact speaking of trips when we took the train up to um, hartford connecticut where the um, out of town tryouts were we took the train up from new york city it was early april and as we got maybe 10 15 miles outside of hartford we ran. we got into a blizzard ah in early april <laughs> so it was like we were in russia we were through this on this train going from moscow to st petersburg All right it was fantastic and, and it the whole thing was like that the whole time the whole my my involvement with it it felt just like that like this path it was just kept just unfolded naturally okay. yeah it was great and yeah. you,
0: you were wonderful in that role i was lucky enough to see it and
1: yeah good yeah that was a that was a real gift getting that part it was a gift but again, I I just felt like I, I I was meant to play it, play her. I mean, I, I'd been preparing for all those years. And we talked about
0: Sondheim before, but you were in one of the last revivals of his work that he was alive for, I think, which was Roadshow.
1: Roadshow, yeah. And, yeah.
0: And what was it like to kind of have him around on that? Oh, and- it
1: was fantastic. It was fantastic to have him around. And he was around a lot. I think there's something about that show that, again, it was one of those shows that had had many manifestations. And What is it? What does it want to be? I mean, com- complete with finding the right title. It didn't, it didn't, it has so many different titles even. I found from the first, my first experience of meeting him, which was in the mid, mid 80s, to... The last roadshow, which was pre-COVID 2019, um, he became more accessible
0: hmm.
1: and more, uh, both more present at rehearsals and through the whole process and more accessible as far as uh, his willingness to let people see how he felt. About things, he was he was more emotional. It was lovely. It was lovely. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And so
0: soon after roadshow, of course, was the pandemic. And what was the kind of experience of that like for you? And then coming out of it, I
1: feel like I I feel like we're still in it. I don't feel like we're out of it. Mm. Yeah. I mean i I did some TV stuff. I did a three little indie films that were great fun to do, uh, that maybe I wouldn't have been able to do if it wasn't for COVID, because mm. maybe I would have been working somewhere on something. Uh so I'm grateful for that. I didn't go back on stage until last, not this, not this, not the this summer, 23, until 22. Um, so it was two years, two and a half years without being on stage. And I don't know. I, I'm i sort of, we all talk about the word normal. Oh, I hope it, I, I just want us to get back to normal. I'm not sure what that means. I'm not sure it'll ever be... The same. And I think all the, the strikes, the Writers Guild strike, the SAG AFTRA strike, are all symbols or examples of why everybody knows you can't go back. Right. It's not, we're not, we're not, we have to find out what the new normal is. We're sort of finding it and inventing it as we go right now, day, day by day. So I don't know. I I mean, I'm really grateful for the amazing journey that I've had as far as career from that classical opera world to a crazy indie movie in the middle of wherever we were. You know, I'm really grateful for all of that. And it seems kind of hard to believe, even for me, but It makes me also a little philosophical about, you know, we just gotta kind of just keep our eyes and ears open and not panic. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Not panic about a lot of things because the world is really crazy. I do. I do. And I think I I know you do. And you're young enough to know that it's, it's, it's your i mean my my world ha, ha, is i i don't want to sound melodramatic saying coming to an end but it, my world is slowing down it's you know i'm i'm reaching the end of the my journey uh, you're just beginning yours oh. so the world that you are creating and wanting to be a part of and wanting to find out what that world is. It's a different one. It's really different. Yeah. And it's going to be a great challenge. It's for the best reasons in the world, a great challenge. You have the opportunity to really make it be what you want it to be. Because I think all the old stuff is shedding. It's just it's not People are people are saying, "Uh, uh-uh, uh, not anymore. Nope." Right. So it's a it's a big it's a big opportunity, and it's a huge challenge for you and your generation to make it what you want it to be. Yeah, it definitely
0: is. Definitely is. Are you well? I think that's a wonderful place to end our interview. And thank you I so do
1: much. too. I do too. Thank you, Charles. It was lovely.
0: Thank you for tuning in and make sure to come back next time when I will be joined by veteran actor Peter Friedman, who is currently starring in the hit sold out play Job off Broadway. His many Broadway credits include Ragtime, The Heidi Chronicles, Twelve Angry Men, The Tenth Man, Piaf, The Visit, Holiday, Love for Love, and Don Juan. He's also appeared off-Broadway in A Soldier's Play and A Nightingale Sang, The Loman Family Picnic, Hamlet, The Beast in the Jungle, Circle Mirror Transformation, and more. He's also starred on Scream in Single White Female, Succession, Someone Like You, I'm Not Rappaport, and more. You won't want to miss this interview with a veteran of the stage and screen, so make sure to tune back in for that, and thanks for listening.